I was ruining some relationships because I couldn't be happy and patient and non-judgmental. Like I didn't like being that way, but I didn't know what was causing it. And I yeah. had no idea that what I was experiencing was the aftermath of going from war to back to a civilian life. I mean, just totally different dynamics of life mm-hmm. without any information about how to cope with it and decompress. Cause I saw and experienced things that people are just not meant to see and experience. That wasn't yeah. explained to me when I got home. Uh, and it wasn't explained to really any Marine, any soldier, any sailor, airman. Now they're, now they've been pushing for help and coping and made it more informational. But when I, back in 2005, it, it was just kind of a, all right, you're back home. Congratulations here. You're, you're free. Go, <laughs> go live your life. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Scott Medlin, who has worked as a police officer since 2007. Prior to that, he was in the United States Marine Corps and was deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003 and 2005. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Oh, well, I am so happy you're here, and you're actually my first person on the show in law enforcement, Um, so it's really exciting to be able to talk to you. Well, I hope I set the bar higher and not low. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the biggest questions I have, because it's so different, your life and what you've chosen to do is so different from my life. I'm curious when you knew that you wanted to join the military. It really all started back in fifth grade. My history teacher, well, social studies, that's what they called it Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in elementary school. (laughs) my My social studies teacher talked about how People in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War felt a need for a strong America, and they fought for it. Mm-hmm. And that was when I got my first little itch of patriotism. Mm-hmm. Then in high school, junior year, a Marine recruiter came into a classroom because the teacher who I had was a Vietnam veteran, a Navy corpsman, who, and the Navy corpsman worked with the Marines. Mm-hmm. So he was he was with the Marines when he was in Vietnam. This Marine was impressive. And then I did yard work for a former Marine colonel who did 28 years in the Marine Corps. And he asked me about, what do you want to do with your future? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe the United States Army. Well, needless to say, he didn't like that answer too much. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, he and I really had a heart-to-heart talk about it. And Mm -hmm. that's when I pretty much decided to go in the Marines right after I got out of high school. Uh huh. And what about your family? Like, what was their feeling about it? Was there military in your family? Just on my, my granddad was in the U.S. Air Corps, I think it was called. It, it was during World War II, so it, it mm-hmm. had a different name than branches do now. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was the only one. So my immediate family, no. My parents, no. It was definitely something they had to, or they felt compelled to really inquire. I mean, they asked mm-hmm. the recruiter themselves, please mm-hmm. come to our house. We have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, he answered all of them, all the questions the right way. And I was, <laughs> and they didn't yeah. object to me, join, object to me joining. Uh-huh. Okay. And so you're basically, I mean, there had been people who served before, but it was kind of this new generation. You started this, this new career path in your family. Yes. And then mm-hmm. my brother joined oh, uh, wow. right, uh, two years after I did in the Marines. Yes. 
Okay, yep. so <laughs> your and family my, was really signed up. Oh yeah, and then my youngest brother went into the army, so we give him heck about that. But <laughs> all three of us went into the military. Well, okay, so now for someone like me, a complete civilian, uh, and someone who will never probably hold a gun, although I did go to a shooting range with some friends, so I have done that. But what, like, what's the deal with the whole Marine Corps versus the Army? Can you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> To put it simple, every Marine is a basic rifleman where at any given time, they are expected to have the skills, the training, the confidence, the capability to be able to be on the front lines like an infantry Marine. Mm -hmm. In the Army, Navy, Air Force, you have a job and of, say, being a desk clerk or a mechanic. That could very well be your job, and you will never be asked to be I front gotcha. lines in a combat role. That's okay. the difference between the Marines. Every single Marine at any given point must be able to step on the front of that line to be able to fight the enemy off. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm glad there's a little bit of sibling uh, ribbing going on there. Oh, there is. So, <laughs> okay. So before we, we, hit, we hit this period of time in your story where you're actually serving, what did serving mean to you? I know you mentioned patriotism, but what was your, what was Scott's brand of, you know, what was your feeling about being in the military and serving at that point? Servitude to me just meant doing something that's bigger than me. Mm-hmm. doing something in a way that other people who I will probably never even meet are, are, are benefited from what I've done. Mm-hmm. So I had that itch and, I, and mm-hmm. I was like, I was in the high school interact club, stuff like that, community service. So that's what servitude meant to me. And that's why I, I, I went through with military decision. I knew that was a big leap. Mm-hmm. And then I have to assume that when you were actually boots on the ground and serving, your perception altered a little bit. And so I'm wondering how and when your the rea- reality of what you were doing changed from what you thought it might be. Originally, pre-9-11, 2001, I, I just had this plan that the Marine Corps was going to be like an easy career builder. Mm-hmm. I was going to join the reserves, go to college, and then eventually get commissioned in the officer ranks. I hope that makes sense. Like rather than yeah. wearing stripes on my on my sleeve, put brass on my collar kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, more of a managerial role. But then 9-11 happens. Mm-hmm. And I remember calling my dad. My, my actual first day as an official Marine reporting in after boot camp was on 9-11. Wow. So, oh, yes. So I called my dad that day. I was at Camp Lejeune in in North Carolina. I called my dad and I said, Dad, you see what's going on? I am going to go to a war eventually. And he he said, no, no, don't worry about it. We'll probably just do some massive air campaigns. You know, you you won't have to go anywhere. But I I knew. I just knew. Mm -hmm. And then needless to say, uh, 2003 rolls around my first deployment. We get to Kuwait before the invasion of Iraq. And while we were getting the Humvees, the, the vehicles off the off the cargo jet that took us over there from the provided by the Air Force, they had that con- they had to talk with us and they said, hey, look, some of us have been shot at on the way to the base. Hmm. So this is real. You know, we're here now. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get to the base safely. And that's when reality hit. I was like, all right, well, this is what we trained for. This is what we're going to do. But it's you know, we're still all human mm-hmm. and there's still that initial fear. 
and the, but you have to have the ability to push past that fear. Mm-hmm. And so I know that you saw, you saw death there and you saw, I mean, can you talk about that deployment? 2003 was not that bad for me. I was just stationed at a Kuwait, at a base in Kuwait. It was like a headquarters base. I was a radio operator. I only made one trip into Iraq, and it was very peaceful. The Iraqi, it was amazing though. The Iraqis were on the side of the streets, just cheering for. It. I mean, they were just they were thrilled to see us. It was amazing, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the kids were just they, they, their their spirits were great. And here I am thinking, wow, this kid is wearing basically. I mean, it looked like just a, a sheet cover, like a pillowcase cover. I mean, it was basically nothing. Mm. And I could tell that like this one boy in particular, I'll never forget uh, locking eyes with him. I could tell that what he had worn, that's what he wore every day just because his clothes were so dirty. But like the spirit in his eyes, I mean, he was smiling so much. And that town we were riding through, through Iraq, I mean, it's, it is, it is literally third world impoverished, uh, country like they, they don't have I guarantee you even right now they, they don't have cell phones mm-hmm. uh, there were people living like biblical times of herding sheep and stuff like that living in tents no electricity mm-hmm. but to see them in their spirit it was just really life-changing so I I know I gave you a long-winded answer for no that, no but, no I I appreciate yeah. that very much and for you what did it make you feel I mean when you say it was life-changing I mean, you see the contrast between the way you're living and they're living. And what was it, you know, if we dig a little even more into that, what do you think it was that was happening for you when you saw these kids, especially that boy? I I realized right then and there how much, one, I had to be grateful for, uh, but two, just to understand, wow, you really don't need things to Mm -hmm. be happy. Like that boy literally had just probably the, the family he was with and or his own family and the clothes on his body and the food that he hopefully got. But yet he, he was happy as could be. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it it really sparked a perspective of gratitude for Mm -hmm. what I had. And I know I'm not the only service member who felt that way. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So how long were you there for that, that tour? That was just a, a five five to six month tour in '03, and then mm-hmm. a year and a half, little little under two years, I went back in '05. That was the tough deployment. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about it? Well, I was stationed in western Iraq at the the Al Anbar province, which we nicknamed the Wild Wild West because mm-hmm. it was really, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of dangerous uh, there were a lot of dangerous cities. The roads were very dangerous because the enemy did not really want to attack us head on. They knew that would be a short battle, so they put up uh, improvised explosive devices all across the road, or would take, or would take position off of the roads, out of sight, and launch mortars at our convoys, which was a, just a series of vehicles that was taking supplies or or troops to a certain mm-hmm. to a destination. And it was it was dangerous. There was an incident in which I was almost killed in a close mortar fire attack. Uh, and it, it, it was during the spring and summer in Iraq, so it was very hot to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And then people I knew got killed. Uh, and then there was, unfortunately, seeing deceased people because of the actions of war. War, war is a terrible thing. It mm-hmm. really is. Uh, but uh, uh, 05 was difficult, but to this day, it amazes me how here we are 16 years later, 
I could call any of the Marines I was there with, I was there in Iraq with, mm. and we could strike up a conversation like there was no time in between. I mean, it bonded us like those of us who were fortunate enough to come back, it bonded us like, like no other. And we're doing the best we can to live the best lives we can to be, to honor the ones who didn't make it home. Mm-hmm. Did you have any, I mean, you know, again, I, I asked this as a complete spectator, but I wonder, did you in 2005 confront feelings of uh, uncertainty about the choices you made or about what might happen? I mean, how did, did, did anything shift for you while you were there? I questioned why we were there because the, the whole premise of the Iraq war was weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein had, and he was going to launch them at the U.S. So it was a preemptive strike to defeat him and remove him from power. Based on my knowledge, no, nothing was really found that he mm -hmm. had weapons of mass destruction. So that that so there was that conflict there when I was over there. But but I got to know some Iraqis in 2005, and I got to hear the stories, their life stories of what they grew up in under the reign of Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. And you talk about cruel. It was. I mean, I don't know how they didn't, I don't know how they told me these stories of what that regime would make citizens and sports teams and corporations do. I don't know how they told me that without just breaking down. I mean, mm -hmm. I heard a lot of horrific stories about what that man did to the Iraqi people. So at that point, it, it was kind of an inner debate, like, well, we're, we're here and we didn't find what we were looking for, but yet at the same time, look mm -hmm. what we're doing for these people and they're thanking us. Now, not all of them did, but the ones I got to know, they were, I mean, they stuck with us. Mm -hmm. It, it was really, uh, it was really something else. So uh, yes, I did. I, I encountered uh, discouragement, anxiety, worry, anger. Um, the, yes, a whole well, as we call it in the Marines, or you know, in life in general, people refer to this the emotional roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's uh, it's it's an interesting perspective, and I hadn't thought about. Iraq in a long time in terms of the weapons of mass destruction and, mm -hmm. and all of that. Because I remember, you know, I was kind of an adult during that time. So I remember that and wondering what was really happening. And it's good to hear that you felt that you were still in the right place and that you were still of service and that you had meaning in what you were doing. No, I, I did. And there were there were other there was intel that other units dealt with where there were attack plans discovered for attacks at the U.S. So fortunately, we intercepted that kind of stuff. Like not not my mm -hmm. unit, but other units intercepted those preemptive attacks that were gonna those planned attacks that were gonna happen in the, on state soil. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, but like I said, it 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 really. I'm when people ask me, should we have gone to war with Iraq? I can't answer yes or no, because yes, there was the actual reason, but then there was the reason of of Saddam Hussein, and, and I got to see those people firsthand, and how they were so thrilled to vote. Oh my mm. gosh! I mean, they 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 would just oh you're for you're from America. Well, you get to vote. That's so cool. Like I'll get to vote soon, and they would talk like this, and it would just, I mean, it was an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And and so when you got back. How did you readjust? How did how was it to be home? And how much time did you give yourself before you made your next move? 
the year after I got home, it wasn't that good. I was very judgmental towards people that, for lack of a better term, just kind of had an easy life and didn't really appreciate that there was a war going on and mm-hmm. what I had been through. I, I do, I, I went back to college and I remember I was in a class one time and a, and a, and a young lady said, our troops are over there and all they're doing is killing babies. Oh. I, I had to hold my, my temper back. I was, I was very upset by that comment she made. That first year being back, I, I didn't do too well. I was actually experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. I was in summer school one day, and, and this is a flashback I won't forget. I, mm-hmm. I was in a history class, and I, I zoned out uh, for who knows how long, but relived that close mortar fire attack, one of the incidents that almost killed me. Uh, so the first year wasn't that easy. So I, like I said, I went through a lot of emotions and uh, dealt with a PTSD. Did you have support at that point? I had my brother because my brother and I were there actually at the same time in the same unit. Oh, so wow. he and I, he and I kind of supported each other as best we could. But when the relationships among family members started falling apart, uh, my parents made it very clear to both of us. It is time for you two to both get help. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know what's going on, but we don't like it. And we don't want to lose our family. Please get help. So we did. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I manned up to it and I got help and I don't come. The, the, the stigma is, well, you're weak if you get help. I disagree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. So when you started getting help, did you feel that judgment of yourself that you needed help? No, no. I could see it that uh, I was ruining some relationships because I couldn't be happy and patient and non-judgmental. Like I didn't like being that way, but I didn't know what was causing it. And I yeah. had no idea that what I was experiencing was the aftermath of going from war to back to a civilian life. I mean, just totally different dynamics of life mm-hmm. without any information about how to cope with it and decompress. Because I saw and experienced things that people are just not meant to see and experience. That wasn't yeah. explained to me when I got home. Uh, and it wasn't explained to really any Marine, any soldier, any sailor, airman. Now they're now they've been pushing for help and coping and made it more informational. But when I back in 2005, it, it was just kind of a all right, you're back home. Congratulations. Here you're you're free. Go <laughs> go live your life. <laughs> yeah, but the, and it's so interesting. I don't know how much help they're offering now and how much information, but it seems so obvious. I mean, I know at least here in Seattle where I live, we're pretty liberal, as I'm sure you can imagine. And there's a lot, at least in our school, um, of like emotional support and just kind of that emotional intelligence work that they're doing on the mm-hmm. children and uh, that idea of uh, reflecting, which can be so helpful for people. But I didn't grow up with that. That was not anything that was given to me as a tool growing up, even in my family, that kind of emotional reflection. And I can see how in a military sense, it would seem counterintuitive to do that, that the old school way of doing things is to just keep plugging ahead. But they they are offering some resources now. Oh, yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think over the last several years since 2005, there's been a, a bigger push for don't worry about, don't worry about if you need help. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I think I, I, I have friends that are still in the Marines uh, and they have told me that, that it's not as much of a stigma any, anymore. I mean, I'm, it is to a certain extent, but also uh, VA clinics across the country have psychologists, psychiatrists, 
to offer help for veterans. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems almost, I guess, like, how could someone go there? I mean, I remember in an earlier conversation, you said to me that the brain is not meant for this kind of exposure or this kind of experience. I think, you know, we're going to talk about law enforcement soon, too. But the brain, the human brain is not meant for all of this. And so the idea that someone could be exposed to this type of experience without processing it seems absurd yes yes i I tell everyone uh military who has seen combat to police officers the brain is wired to protect us and when you go into dangerous situations you you are releasing stress hormones whether you like to or not because the brain is going into a fight or flight mode in in which something that it is does not innately want to go through well you're going through it Mm-hmm. And there's going to be stress hormones. There's going to be a physical and mental reaction that you cannot escape. And it's up, it's your job to, to cope with it um, because n- nobody can do the coping for you. So it does, it does fall on the individual. Fortunately, there are resources and information out there like we've never had before. And that's a good thing. That's one mm-hmm. thing we have working in our favor. Do you think that I, I, this is kind of a strange, it's kind of like a, more abstract question but do you think it's possible in your experience and who you know and even when you think about your brother who I'm curious how he's doing now or both brothers but is it possible to go to a combat zone and not be affected I mean is it is it possible to be in the military and be a machine versus a human I don't on face value no I don't think so I think that everyone is affected. Now, fortunately, some cope with it better than others because they're active in coping with it. But no, on the surface level, no. I don't think you can go through what the military has to go through. If you're deployed to a combat zone, or like my youngest brother, he was deployed to Guantanamo Bay, and that was stressful with 12-hour mm-hmm. shifts dealing with the terror detainees. Mm-hmm. It was it was, it was was stressful. So uh, uh, do, after doing that for a year, being you know stuck on that base for a year, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it took a toll, but on first face value, no, I don't think someone can just go through experiences like that and just not be affected in any way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if everyone knows that now, I wonder how people approach enlisting. Like, I wonder if, if everyone knew, and this is just sort of, again, again, like an existential question from a non-military <laughs> person, like if, if everyone knew for sure that they would be irrevocably changed, that they weren't, you know, tough enough, you know, quote, tough enough to do this without being affected and have some stress and, you know, PTSD at the end, if the enlisting would change or if people would still go for it because it was so important. I think people would still go for it because it's important, but also in the Marines you have or you really want to have and you should have uh, valuable leaders, good mentors, good fire team leaders, squad leaders, like basically big leadership all the way down to small unit leadership that will make it very clear we're in this together and we'll get Mm -hmm. each other through this. And therefore, the Marine or the soldier, sailor, airman, Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard rescuer, whoever will feel Mm -hmm. support and and, Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely go through with what they want to do in joining the military. Mm-hmm. And are your brothers doing okay? I mean, you seem like you're doing really well, and we're going to talk about what you're up to these days, but how are your brothers? Oh, they're doing much better. I, I think all of us uh, became regular patients in, in the psychologist's office, <laughs> but, uh, but it was uh, it was worth it. I mean, it was definitely worth it. Uh, my mm-hmm. My youngest brother actually really dove in deep to emotional freedom technique. Uh, 
tapping therapy. Oh, I think yes. he's actually certified in that stuff now. Um, and then uh, my my younger brother, yes, uh, he he uh, got help as well, and he actually just attended a uh, tremendously huge meditation seminar put on by one of the most pronounced uh, self help gurus in the world, Dr. Joe Dispenza, who specializes in meditation for the most part. So yes, overall, <laughs> we're we're doing a lot better. Wow. So you're like really uh, conscious and introspective former military brothers. Well, it's only because we, we felt we have felt the pain and it hurts so bad that we didn't want to live the rest of our lives in pain. Mm-hmm. Un- unfortunately, I, some of the people I've served with, they, they haven't turned their life around. They've they've they're really struggling and I'm there mm-hmm. for them. But uh, yes, us three, we, we, we just we got to a point where the pain was so much we, we all didn't want to live our lives that way. Mm-hmm. So I think it sounds like the people who are still struggling, would you say it's because they haven't availed themselves of the resources or do you think they don't have the capacity to be introspective? I believe they know they need help, but our minds like to pick up on patterns. And if they're in the pattern of drinking alcohol or if they're in the pattern of thinking negative or they're in the pattern of being angry the the second there's a thought of changing even if it's even though it's negative practices and patterns it's still hard to push past and make a commitment Mm -hmm. to do the work Mm -hmm. regardless of I mean it's just kind of the same as if someone smokes and they know it's not healthy and they want to quit it's very Mm -hmm. hard to quit Mm -hmm. Uh, because there's that mental fortitude you have to have. I mean, that commitment, and that's what it takes when you're coping. I mean, I'm still coping to this day, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I don't mind telling people, heck, I'm on YouTube talking about it, how I'm still being treated by the VA for uh, symptoms of PTSD. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you're willing to share those thoughts because not everyone will walk in your shoes, and I think it's good to have that understanding for the rest of us. Um, so what made you decide to get into law enforcement now that you're a civilian? When I was a little kid, here, here was the first inclination to do it. When I was a little kid, I was in the garage in my mom's car waiting on her to take my brothers and I to, to a place. And I saw this guy in the neighborhood walking door to door. I knew he didn't live there. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he was walking door to door and he was looking in windows, and then when he would knock on the door, he would stand right up at the door waiting for someone to answer the door. Well, it scared me because he was getting closer to our house. And I told <laughs> my mom, I said, Mom, this guy's coming to our house. And she looked up the road and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to, yeah, okay. So she called the police, and then we left. You know, she didn't want to be mm-hmm. in the house when he came to our house. Mm-hmm. I felt scared. I didn't like feeling scared and I just wanted the police to get there to help protect me. Mm-hmm. Well, later in life, I just ended up being that person wanting to be the cop that arrived to help that scared kid or the person that needed help. It just stuck with me. Uh, plus here and there, I would sneak an episode of cops in when it was <laughs> on TV and my mom didn't really want me watching it, but I would watch it and I really enjoyed watching what the police would do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so- so you like became the person you wanted to be. Yes, I, I followed through with what I wanted to do because of the 
desires that were there. Yes, I did. Yeah. So then when did you start to do the work you're doing now, which is to talk about mental health and, and being a police officer? I had no idea when it comes to the mental health aspect, I had no idea for the last three years, I had no idea that more police officers committed suicide than were actually killed in the line of duty. I had no idea. Mm. And I hate that I had no idea. I think that's bad. I had no idea. Like this information has to get out there. So January of last year, 2020, when I heard that 228 police officers had killed themselves, whereas I think less than 170 actually died on duty, which is still tragic, but Mm. my gosh, I mean, we know there's the job risk. We're not supposed to be killing ourselves. Uh, Mm I, I, I just, it's like God slapped me in the back of the head and said, write a book. I I said, (laughs) all right, because I, based on the pain that I've been through, the struggles of depression, addiction, and PTSD that I've had to do what deal with Mm -hmm. still getting treated for it. Now I said, you know what, I will write about this based on experience, what I've learned, and then also more research I can do. So that's when, that's what led to the writing of my book, mental health fight of the heroes in blue. Mm-hmm. And how is it received? How did the people that you work with, your peers and then your superiors think about this? Oh, the, the city agency I was working for at the time, the, I sent a copy to the chief and he was grateful. He was like, this is amazing. You're doing this. Good job. I look forward to reading your book. It's got five stars on Amazon, so I hope that it means it's doing well. <laughs> well, well, what I mean is, I mean, I have no doubt that it's a good book and that it's useful. What I mean is, you know, what was this feeling among your peers about sort of, I guess, like lifting the veil, like, you know, looking inside of what police officers are really going through? Because, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I have this sense that there's a sort of strength and this idea that if you are in law enforcement, that you are really impermeable and uh, can take a lot, like Teflon, right? So what I'm curious about is how people in your field feel about being revealed to be struggling sometimes and to be having these mental health challenges. Oh, I got you. I don't think that there's any hiding it based on the stats. So officers have one or two ways of handling this. They can either be in denial and unfortunately maybe still be extremely vulnerable to the symptoms of depression, anxiety, PTSD, addictions, whatever the case may be, because of the trauma that they see on the job. Or they understand that they are human just like everybody else and they're not a robot that gets plugged into the wall at the end of every shift and just gets recharged. Uh, They can learn how to cope with things. And when I came out with my book, it was very well received. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you do speaking now. And when you when you go to these groups of officers, how what's the kind of feeling in the room? Is there an openness there? Do you see there's any defensiveness or guardedness among some of the attendees? I've only spoken to a few groups. I, my goal is to speak to many, many more and thousands more across the world. Uh, overall, no, they, even if they're not willing to admit anything personally, they are receptive because mm-hmm. the stats don't lie. And mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're numbers and you can't run away from the fact that just like in combat uh, with the military, we see things that the human mind is not supposed to see. When everyone's running out because of a threat, the police are running in the, the mind's initially going, wait, 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 what, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going that way. You're going the opposite way. What's going on? And there's again, that fl- fight or flight. And you have to choose to fight. 
but there's still stress hormones and those stress hormones and the, the mental aspect and then what the eyes see of whether it be a person taking their last breath because they've been shot, a child who's been a victim of a horrific crime. Uh, heck, even I was in the schools for three years. I unfortunately would have to see how kids were bullied on the Internet, and it was very crude. Mm. That was something that I had, I had to work on processing as well. Mm. It sounds like a lot. I mean, even those specifics, you know, I have this general idea of what a police officer does. But when you even get into those very few particulars, I find myself realizing it's far heavier and harder than I thought it would be. It's a it can be a very taxing job. And it can, as I say in some of my videos on YouTube, it can suck the life out of you if you're not careful. Yeah. A, a new officer can come in go through training no problem and then get out on their own on patrol and then they're having a blast and then all of a sudden I mean it could be as quick as six months to a span of a few years they could maybe be a totally different person mm. and, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm immune from this I've had my struggles too mm -hmm. but in law enforcement we're taught to be aware of a person's hands a person's demeanor of, of our surroundings of a, of a layout of a building for security purposes so awareness is key. I'm trying to push on to law enforcement officers, be just as aware of yourself as you are aware of what you've been trained to be aware about. We need to be trained to be aware of ourselves and notice that if a relationship's faltering or we're gaining weight and we won't stop eating right, but yet, mm -hmm. or, or we're being judgmental towards people, or all of a sudden we're losing our friends that we used to hang out with for, mm -hmm. for so long. You know, what? why is that? Why is that happening? Could it be because of the job? <laughs> Absolutely, it could be. Mm -hmm. And they right. have to be aware of that. That's really hard, too. It's hard to always be aware of how you are in the world and what's happening in your it, relationships. It is very hard. And, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, and I even talk about it in my book. I, when I was working as a police canine officer, I let that become my identity. I was so wrapped up in that job, it became who I was. Hmm. And unfortunately, I had relationships that faltered because of it. And it was tough. It, it was tough. When I almost lost my marriage, I said, I got to, I got to, something's got to happen. And I don't want to, I don't want to be just another divorced cop. So I got, I got out of the canine unit and it was hard to do, mm -hmm. but yes, it, it, like I said, I'm not immune to this. I've, I've, I wrote the book because I've gone through struggles of my own. Yeah. Yeah. And so what worries you, what worries you the most right now about your fellow police officers or about the job that you do? What worries me now is just overall morale's low across the country. It's very stressful to be in law enforcement right now. Mm -hmm. So I pray that officers don't let don't let negativity get the best of them. Remember who you are, why you want to do what you want to do, and if you're the right person doing it for the right reasons, remember that. Don't forget that, and that will help you stick it out. Um, just, you know, in case any of your listeners are law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I, I mean, it's it's a it's a look into a different life than than what a lot of people live. And I, I think about, too, how you keep yourself healthy. Um, it, so it sounds like you you have a marriage that is strong and you are a father. So who how do you keep tabs on yourself like how do you know when something is not quite right and how do you know that you're on the right track mental health wise my wife will tell me hey you're not acting right <laughs> <laughs> but it, it 
when when things start to hurt or when I'm not doing something that's healthy for me, I made it a promise to myself when I did get in into law enforcement that one, I would not get out of shape. Unfortunately, there's that stereotype of the fat cop eating a donut. Yeah. I did not want to be that cop. And, and fortunately, I have not been. But I know veteran officers who have become that or who are that. And, and I remember when I first got started, one of them told me he was a veteran of 20 plus years. He said, good luck, you thin buck. In 10 <laughs> years, you'll double you'll double your waist size. And I kind of took that as a challenge. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway. That's but funny. I, I, I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> I, I'm aware to the sense when things start hurting, when I start realizing I'm not as happy as I should be. Mm-hmm. Because I've I've seen how much little... I've seen how little some people have and and yet why would I not be grateful for what I have whenever I've seen how some people have it so much worse so mm-hmm. when I start to see like why am I bitter why am I angry well it's because of just the chemical and mental reaction that happens because of not processing or coping with mm-hmm. the challenges that I've had to go through through the job mm-hmm. yeah and so I guess maybe you know your mission and what you want other people to know is that they they have to be as aware of themselves and what they need as what they're doing in the world for their job or their their work absolutely absolutely and i think and i pray that every department every sheriff's office every federal agency across the country and and the world really starts to hammer home training for police officers even if they act like they don't want to listen to it at least mm-hmm. provide it, but it does have to be by someone who is effective in, and it, who is effective in communicating with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Right, which yep. is, which is where you really fit in well because you have you've been there, you're there now, and you understand that world. Mm-hmm. Different from someone coming in as an outsider. Well, I've talked to some people who teach law enforcement agencies who weren't in law enforcement. They made it a point to tell the law enforcement officers, "Look, I understand." That I'll have, I'll never go through what you've gone through, or I, I probably won't see what you have seen as much as you have seen it. Mm-hmm. But I promise you that these techniques and strategies that I'm about to teach you will help you. It's something like that. It, it, and that's good for communication styles across the board, no matter what job you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in law enforcement, but it definitely helps. I mean, just mm-hmm. because I can relate to what they've been through. Oh, well, yeah, I would imagine that the people listening to you who are in law enforcement will probably listen even better knowing that that's where you're from. You know, I mean, I know I would. So before we tell listeners where we can find your your work and your book, I'm curious about this question of vulnerability. And it's kind of, again, another existential question, but no I'm, pick, I'm picking your brain this morning, Scott. <laughs> I'm wondering about this whole idea of vulnerability, which has been so much more in the conversation. Uh, I feel like mm-hmm. the, the global conversation and work conversations. I was just talking to someone who was talking about how, you know, it's so much more part of the work environment these days to talk about vulnerability. And so is there any worry or danger about too much vulnerability considering the the job you and other officers have to do? Like, is there is there a, a point where it's just too much uh, touchy-feely, mushy in your feelings? Or do you feel like the more the better? <laughs> I get what you're saying. I think I think balance is a good thing. If an officer is approached every time they <laughs> they deal with say say a suicide or or a murder scene or having to 
do an initial intake or interview of not an interview, but like get the initial information of when a child is a victim of a horrific crime, Mm -hmm. something like that. If every time they're, if every time they go have to work through that experience, if every time they're whisked away into a counselor's office, I think that would get pretty discouraging. Mm -hmm. And it would be like, why am I doing this? I'm good. I can, I can handle it on my own. And I would, and I trust they would. It's just up to, I believe, supervisors, administrators to really keep a tab on how their agency, how their, how their sheriff's office is doing. Mm -hmm. So to, so to answer your question, I, I know, I think the main thing that can really help is when police officers, when they're in the rookie school, like when they're in the police academy, that's when their brains are more malleable and, mm-hmm. and, and open to what instructors have to say versus the hardened 15-year veteran mm-hmm. who, who's <laughs> like, well, who's this person? Uh, <laughs> I, I would have to say uh, hit it home hard in the, in the initial training of how to cope and, and understand that you're, you're human and, and what, what you're about to see will affect you as if you don't learn how to cope with it. And here, we're going to help you learn how to cope with it as well as the, like I said before, the, the supervisors and the, the captains and the administration above to really keep it, keep it, uh, keep yeah. it under control. And, and like the department where I used to work, they had an active chaplain program mm-hmm. where that chaplain would ride with the officers and go out on calls with them. Mm-hmm. And if something was hard that they went through, then he would be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was pretty incredible. Yeah, and it's also, I wonder, even if you had people, um, what is someone in charge of a police force? Is that a captain? I don't know. Is it a captain? Like, who's in charge uh, well, of the people? Yeah. There's, there's the sheriffs who, was in, who are in charge of the counties, and then the police chiefs are in charge okay. of the city city agencies. So, that, that's, I mean, sometimes, you, they, sometimes they call themselves commanders, but yeah, I mean, that's, for the most part, police chiefs and sheriffs. So, but the people that would be in the office where, where police officers call their office, where they go back to, I mean, if those people have some emotional intelligence and some awareness about their force and what's going on with their people, that's already going to help a lot. I mean, do you find that those people have had some more emotional intelligence in your experience, or is that some area that needs work? I'm not speaking for any agency here. I'm just speaking based on personal experience. Mm-hmm. I, I think it needs a little bit more work. Mm-hmm. I, one of my favorite quotes about leadership is by John Maxwell. He says, nobody cares about how much you know until they know about how much you care. Mm-hmm. And a caring leader will be there and understand what their troops are going through. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I made that mistake in Iraq where I didn't connect well enough with my troops and and I, I never want to be that way again, but I don't want police administration, higher ranks to fall into that where they, all they care about really is how much they know. And it, and it blinds them to being effective leaders, caring for their troops welfare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope that yeah, makes sense. That makes great sense. And I hadn't heard that quote before and I appreciate it. Thank you. So is there anything, Scott, that we didn't touch on that you were hoping to talk about? I would say, obviously, right now across the country, there is, there are a lot of people who don't know how to feel about the police. Mm-hmm. If you are wishy-washy about police, whether it be because you did have a bad experience, or you've seen what you've seen on the news and you and you really don't like the way you think police is going, I encourage you to see if the department you see if where the city you live, the department over that city, protecting that city 
has a citizens academy or community meetings or a ride along program that's one thing i encourage people to do go on a ride along i mean seriously like be out there with the cops see what they go through mm. see what they are roll up on i mean that's what converted me was my first ride along i was like yep i'm doing this <laughs> uh, but there there's there are people who have done ride alongs and said wow i didn't know it was like this i just thought it was pulling over pulling people over writing a speeding ticket then then directing traffic <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's that's what i encourage people to do uh there there's I mean, even in uh, Seattle, there's mm-hmm. a lady named Victoria Beach, I believe her name is. She's a she's an advisory council civilian uh, working with the Seattle Police Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, uh, a guy named uh, Mike Wing, he, uh, Unity Spark Challenge in California, I believe. Uh, th- these are these are citizens doing what they can to work with the police to help positive change happen where it needs to where it needs to happen, so that the police can continue to be protecting guardians of the city against mm-hmm. evil that that does exist but also work and be a valuable asset to their to the civilians that they took an oath to protect yeah yes no i that's that's really i never even thought about doing that thank you for you know i think it's important to know there are resources and also it's important to me as um the host of this show to just you remind myself and and people I care about that nothing really is a monolith there are very few things that are all the same across the board and Mm -hmm. to think about a police force as a monolith is dangerous as much as to think about a group of people or a race or you know anyone group of people as a monolith right right and I and believe me I'm not going to be I will I will never defend a police officer who acted wrongly. I, that, that is not me. Will not even will not even entertain the thought. Uh, but for those, like I said, I just encourage people to rather than looking at it from an outside perspective, I bet there's a way you can get involved with your local police department somehow to get to know them, see how they work. And hey, if, if things need to change, then they need to change. There's no there's no arguing that. So mm-hmm. where there's a human element, which is, I mean, basically anything, mm. uh, there's going to be mistakes, but we can all strive for excellence together. Mm-hmm. So Scott, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? I just launched a website. It's called leomotivation.com. LEO stands for law enforcement officer. So I just abbreviated it. Mm-hmm. LEOmotivation.com, or you can type in police motivation channel on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be my YouTube channel. It's a work in progress mm-hmm. uh, or my books. You just type in my name, Scott Medlin, and my books will come up on Amazon, uh, mental health fight of the heroes in blue or 101 health tips for police officers. And I know for a fact that mental health fight of the heroes in blue has actually helped people who are not in law enforcement work through anxiety and, and depression so I'm glad to have, I'm glad to have known that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're just really at the beginning of all this. I mean, you're not that old, and you've started this work in the past couple of years, and you're already making some big strides. I mean, it's pretty exciting. I mean, how long have you been actively working in this area of mental health? Just an active patient for many a years, but author and researcher only a year now. You're going like gangbusters already. I mean, I know COVID has definitely slowed things down, but the fact that mm-hmm. you've already produced these books and that you're already really in the mix of offering these resources bodes well, don't you think? Well, I just, I want to 
really do my part to bring down the suicide rate, the depression rate, but also help officers in their morale and mental health so they can do their job that much more better so they can be exactly what the civilians and, and the community expects and deserves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm really glad that we were able to connect and that uh, we had this conversation today and that I can share it. I think it's important. Thank you so much for being my guest, Scott. It was great, great, great talking with you. Well, I appreciate it. I really do. And it was an honor. And to all the listeners, I really hope I was of help in some way. I really, really do. I mean, 2020, just because 2020 went away doesn't mean everything's going to be great. So 2021 (laughs) is going to have its fair share of challenges, but we can get through this. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You take really good care of your family and yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 